Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hello, it's 2019 and we're back. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Paul. And you? Very, very good. So we ended our first batch of podcasts uh, last year and we're restarting a new series, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're, we're going to go through the kind of nine disciplines that we covered in the last series again, all within the context of the startup, grow up, scale up challenge. But this session, we're going to take almost like this is like a episode zero, where we're really going to break down the fundamental challenge of the whole extraordinary journey that our founders go on. Almost from inception through to, you know, real scale. Wow. And I know that we have an amazing lineup of guests coming up, but today's guest is even more amazing. Can you introduce him to us, well, please? Yeah. So sitting next to me is another Stephen, Stephen Chandler. And um, I first met Stephen in probably 2002 when he was the CFO and heading up Europe for... Message Labs, which went on to become one of the very, very biggest SaaS businesses in Europe when it was acquired by Symantec in 2008. And since that day, he has been putting his inspiration, if that's the right, the right word, to work investing in more and more extraordinary companies. So is ideally positioned, I think, from a personal perspective, to really talk about the entrepreneurial journey, both as an operator and as an investor. So, Stephen, welcome along. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, what we want to talk about today is the kind of the essence of the, the challenge. And, and there's a certain amount of how does it feel? And there's a certain amount of, you know, what are the kind of fundamental priorities? And we break down, we've talk, spoken about this a few times before, this kind of startup. I'm solving a problem. Is it a problem that's really worth solving? Do I think I can build a really big business? Can I achieve product market fit? Kind of grow up five to 50 million revenue where I'm really kind of building out the, the repeatability and the machinery. And then 50 to, let's say 150. You've been through that journey right from inception at Message Labs and you've seen it over and over and over again. So I suppose two questions. How did it feel? And could you kind of discern a fundamental difference in the business through those kind of life stages? And then when you think about what matters most as an entrepreneur, as an investor, you know, what do you really, really look for in terms of fundamental distinct phases of that journey? Well, I guess, you know, when you look back at my history and journey, you know, I wouldn't say that we define those different stages in the way that we do now. We've almost, as investors, gone back and retrospectively applied those different phases to the different parts of the journey. And even then, they're not perfect, as we know, because it's not that you move from one phase to another overnight. It's more about kind of identifying the different challenges and priorities at those different phases of the journey. You know, when I look back at our days of message apps, and of course, what you didn't mention within message apps, the team involved in that had done a startup before with Star and had had some success with that as well. So we've been on the journey a few times as operators. And the thing that came through in terms of how did it feel throughout all of that was, you know, just massive passion about the pain point and challenge that we were addressing and about our desire to build something very big and special. I certainly think in those early days, we weren't as scientific as perhaps we are now in, uh, you know, quantifying the, the size of the opportunity and really understanding our unit economics. It was more just 
raw passion and desire to win. You know, we had a lot of competitive spirit within the team. We were good friends as well, spent a lot of time both within work and outside of work. You know, I think all of those ingredients were very important to our ultimate success. But when you talk about those three phases now, and I go back and look at them, uh, you know, that I think they are very helpful in us trying to put some shape and consistency about the way you should think about your business. So as you said there on that first phase, the startup phase, it's about, you know, identifying a pain that's really worth going out and solving, assembling an early team around you to address that and then building a minimum viable product that addresses it. And really, you just want to remain really focused on those. Yes, you try and identify an ideal customer profile of the people that you're going to sell it to. But the truth is that will iterate over later phases because to really define your ideal customer profile, you know, you do need to understand unit economics and to really understand unit economics, you need to see the pattern of the business over a period of time, not least for sort of metrics that take time to come through, like churn, for example, and retention. But in that phase, it's about keeping it simple, being very, very tight about the way you control costs, test and learn, iterating, and trying to get to that elusive product market fit. Just as I said earlier, the stages don't switch overnight. The same applies to product market fit. It's not that one day you don't have it and the next day you do. It's just getting increasing confidence that your product does fit with the market opportunity and and you need to have some kind of enough statistical data to really support that. So enough customers to really provide the evidence that you're looking for that you've got that kind of fit. I really enjoyed the way you didn't miss a beat at all there. When the moment you started talking, they started drilling next door. True, <laughs> true professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's kind of break down those a, a, a little bit and, and maybe we'll put your other hat on, which obviously now is the, the managing partner of Notion and overseeing the investment team and thinking about why these kind of phases are so important as an investor as well as an an entrepreneur. So we invest in early stage startups and we talk a lot, don't we, about the importance of product market fit and companies being able to keep enough powder dry, if that's the right word, so that when they do have product market fit, they can really start to grow the business aggressively. So why is this so important to you as an investor that companies really focus in on product market fit? And then what are some of the signals you look for? Before I answer that, just to talk about why I became an investor, I guess, because I made the jump across from being an operator to an investor because I wanted to bring the skills and learnings that I'd had as an operator to bear over a, over a portfolio of companies. And because I believed that the time was right in the European ecosystem and in the evolution of the technology landscape towards SaaS, et cetera, that we had a really differentiated kind of perspective on the market. So one of my great passions is spending time with those entrepreneurs and really um, um, bringing those experiences to bear. And I think, you know, as an investor, we've had to learn our trade because although in my early career, I've had some kind of investment management experience as a a banker, I, I hadn't been out there investing in portfolio companies. So we had a lot to learn as well. And I think we have learned a huge amount over the 10 years that Notion's, nearly 10 years that Notion's been around. And this, this point that you're kind of drilling into is, is one of those key learnings. And that is that that early phase of a business is all around efficiency, efficiency of your time and efficiency of your capital. 
And if you don't use either of those efficiently, you're not going to create value. You're not going to optimize the creation of value and you can end up with a failure in terms of your business. So it's really important that you remain uber, uber focused. And the best way to do that is to keep things very simple, be very disciplined. You know, that's why we always talk about really focusing down on an, on an ideal customer profile and, and not spending too much money until you, you've reach that elusive product market fit stage that you talked about. So the point one is around efficiency. Point two is around capability. The type of people that you need at those different phases of the business are often slightly different as well. So making sure you have the right team for the right stage. So again, before product market fit, it's that kind of pathfinder mentality. You know, it's about exploring all different avenues of opportunity and just not taking no for an answer and finding out how you can get through different organizations to see whether they, that your product is relevant and uh, there is demand for it there. So you need that kind of slightly sort of Viking pathfinder mentality. But once you move beyond product market fit, it's much more around scalability, repeatability. It's about being really disciplined around qualification of leads and making sure that you're only spending time in the place that you, know, you have designated strategically as the market you're going after. That's a very different mindset. And it's not to say that you know, founders can't change the way they think about things between those different phases, but it's not completely natural to them. And you will definitely need some different skills in those different phases. So I think that's the second important thing. And then the third one is investors. So both from my side of the table and from the founder's point side of the table, investors have different things that they're looking for, different stages that they're looking to invest in. And if you can be clear about where you are and what you're trying to achieve at this stage, it makes that, that process of raising money much easier. You go to the right people, you have the right conversation with them. So it's easier from the founder's perspective, but it's also easier from our perspective. So let's, um, let's kind of move into the next phase. I mean, I really like that kind of uh, analogy of the pathfinder slash Viking kind of mentality. I, I actually was meeting one of, with one of our early stage companies this morning, and we were talking about exactly this. You know, stay very lean, stay very focused, but also keep your mind very, very open. Because, yes, I am narrowing in on this market opportunity, but I've also got to be conscious of where the really big market so it's quite, a, it's quite a challenging situation. But let's say I've got to 5 or 10 million in revenue. And I have started to really get myself confident that actually this, I'm really on something here. I'm solving a problem actually no one really thought was possible to be solved. And I'm starting to do it in a, in a, a repeatable way. And those next two or three years, what we call the grow up, phase. I'm going to be interested to hear what your, your analogy is going to be. You've also got a real knack for finding those phrases. Many people say this is the hardest part. We, we romanticise, don't we, the startup, and we romanticise the exit, but actually it's the hard yards in the middle. And I wonder if we can just talk about a little bit about some of the behaviours you like to see, behavioural changes, some of the team dynamics that you see changing, and some of the, um, the organisational and commercial changes that you see in an organization during that time yeah sure i think you're right it is a really really important phase because some of those early customer wins you can win you know by sheer um force of kind of enthusiasm and some of your relationships often founders are, are pretty creative people and can can get in front of the, the right people and, and convince them to uh, buy into some of their early vision especially people that are themselves kind of visionary adopters if you like early adopters in the in the market cycle but this next phase is about can you really begin to build a, a proper the foundations of a proper business that can then go on to greatness. So rather than in that early phase where, frankly, people are buying your product 
whoever wants to buy your product is buying your product and you're often not terribly disciplined about who they are and how and what channels you use to uh, to access them once you move into this grow up phase it really is about understanding your unit economics so how on the cost side does your fixed cost scale um, as you drive volume through the business what channels are going to be most effective churn as i said you're beginning to get indications of uh, engagement with the product and ultimately retention and churn within the product. So you can begin to define not just based on who wants to buy your product and the size of those, that, that market, but also the unit economics and profitability of that market and therefore where you should be spending your time and resources. And that's a really, really important phase and, and one where we've seen lots of challenges, I guess, within portfolio companies who have perhaps scaled a little bit too early, invested into sales and marketing to go after people who wanted to seem to want to buy their product without really understanding the economics of delivery. And, you know, ultimately you then look back and discover that you've won a whole load of customers that are actually not profitable to you at all. And we've seen that in a number of cases. So and indeed, so, did it yourself. Yes. Uh, yes. Apps, yes. I mean. You know, we, you know, in the message app story, we, we very, uh, were very channel focused in the early days, just, you know, to us, it seemed absolutely obvious that the product would be an extension that ISPs would want to add on to their offering. And the truth was it was, but they just weren't terribly, you know, it wasn't their own product. They weren't terribly good at selling value add in that particular market. It was a very commoditized market. So we had to rethink and we had to look at the unit economics. And what we discovered was, okay, it cost more to win the customer initially from a direct approach, but ultimately we had such fantastic lifetime value that it was much more economically preferable to address the market directly. And so we shifted the business from a kind of 90% channel to a, you know, 70% direct business over over a number of years. That kind of optimization is a critical part of the, the grow-up years, isn't it? Yes, really important. And, and you asked about the team point. I, I haven't mentioned capability and team, but it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It is a different persona that you need there in terms of the capabilities you need to bring in those people who can begin to truly operationalize your your business so you know this is when you're hiring heads of talent to help you help you scale this is when you're hiring sales operations people to help you put in place the fundamentals within your sales organization around compensation and hierarchy and all of that to to help you succeed I mean, obviously, it's an incredible, possible tra- big transformation in terms of the leadership team. So I'm bringing in kind of game changers who, who've built a sales function before, built a product before, we've built a, uh, an organization before. There's a big change for the CEO as well. And you, we know that there's real value in the founder remaining as the CEO. But, but what are the fundamental, the most important changes you'd look for in the CEO to say, this person is really getting the importance of this transformational stage. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the empirical evidence is out there that um, founder-led companies are often some of the biggest outcomes you see in the technology landscape. So we are, you know, as ex-founders ourselves, we're a very founder-friendly, what we, we describe as entrepreneurially empathetic firm um, in the way that we want to try and support our founders. But it's equally the case that it's not right for all founders to continue to lead that business all the way through on the journey. And I think it's important for a founder to really be self-aware enough to understand where their strengths and weaknesses are and therefore where they need to augment their skills with other capabilities and other team members and to, you know, spend time doing the things that they enjoy and are good at rather than necessarily trying to do everything. 
So we, we always look at the kind of team dynamic when we're assessing a company and understand the gaps and how those are going to be filled. And it, it, it definitely isn't one size fits all. You know, you need different capabilities depending on, on the founder. There are some still some qualities that you see within your founders that are required in order to drive that, that large outcome. And it's not just a, a good understanding of their technology and the products and the market they're addressing. It's a, you know, a charisma to attract great talent and a desire to want to hire that talent. You know, I'm, I'm always keen on people who are just saying, how do I find the best possible person I can? You know, I want to overhire for this role um, who someone will still be fit for purpose in, in several years' time rather than playing catch-up. Because if you play catch-up, you'll, you'll always be playing catch-up. So um, uh, looking for that within their mindset, the way that they're thinking about the business. I personally like founders that spend a lot of time with their customers in those early days you don't want to hire a senior salesperson too early well certainly not if that means cutting yourself off from the customer engagement side because i think that's so important to defining your your overall strategy but yes some 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 different capabilities needed so the pathfinder has become a kind of company builder and they're kind of starting to build the machinery underneath the business and the repeatability they're understanding that their their efficiency as you described it and let's say they're hitting this their stride and they're like 30, 40, 50 million in, in revenue. They've got a real shot now of building a, a big, enduring business. What changes at that stage? And I know you've, you've been through it personally and you've seen examples within our portfolio. Is it just more of the same or is there a different mindset when you get into that kind of real scale up 50, 100, 150, 200 million in revenue? I think there is a different mentality. And, and, and once again, it's not necessarily the case that the talent translates uh, across those roles. You know, when you're still in the um, grow up phase, you probably don't have, certainly in the case of lots of roles, the, the resources or the profile to attract all the world leading talent that you want. So you know, some of the best talent that's out there in some of the you know, large organizations isn't going to join a relatively small startups. But once you get into this kind of scale-up phase, as long as you're still you know, executing and growing and the potential is still there, you can really begin to attract some of the world's very best talent. That's, uh, you know, something that I think is, you know, you need to be thinking about in terms of your de- development of the firm. Because really, I, I, mean, I would characterize the scale-up phase as you've had this early growth, but you see a lot of companies where growth begins to wither away and managing to sustain that growth at real scale is a real challenge. There's lots of companies that don't um, manage to do that. And in order to do that, you, you know, you need to have that real kind of scale mentality. And that means not only executing within your core and existing markets and uh, further refining the execution there to make sure that you continue to sustain growth there, but also entering new markets. And I, when I say new markets, I mean new geographies, product extensions, new sectors, all of those kind of things to to drive the growth figure and keep it sustainable. So that company builder really has become a strategist at a certain level that they've, they've really got to be thinking about the, the opportunities to, to really commercialise on a much, much broader basis. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, this is when the CEO really does become the conductor of an orchestra rather than, than someone that's out there playing all of the different instruments, which... Uh, they tend to be doing um, in those earlier phases. And again, you know, that's why this skill is very difficult. You know, it's, it's not necessarily 
the same mindset and skill as the founder has an early day. And, you know, early days, that's why, you know, Zuckerberg had Sheryl Sandberg. And there are lots of other examples out there of bringing in that kind of operational mm. experience alongside you to really help you um, help you scale the business. I wonder whether we can just kind of finish off with maybe a couple of just talking about a few founders that have within our portfolio or outside that have, have really inspired you through the, the way they've progressed through this um, through these phases. I mean, I can think of a couple of fairly obvious ones that would be great to talk about. One in particular, Christian Lang. Yeah, I mean, this is an extraordinary journey building yep. trade ships. Started in what 2011 in Copenhagen, and he has a huge ambition. And you've been there alongside him on that journey. Yep. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. And what so, um, yeah, the history there is it was one of our, it was before 2011, actually. I think our investment was probably 2011 in maybe even late 10, but um, uh, they'd founded the business a couple of years before right. that. Uh, we led the Series A, um, uh, actually a long time, alongside a strategic in that, at that time, which was PayPal. And, you know, I was just captivated by uh, Christian as a founder because he is uh, extremely... He is a Viking. He is a Viking for a start. He's a Dane and a Viking, but he's extremely inspirational. And, and what I love about uh, Christian is, you know, the scale of his ambition is simply enormous, and he's utterly fearless in terms of his pursuit of that. Both um, great qualities, but at the same time, you know, he comes with humility and is willing to listen to people and to different perspectives. And I think a combination of those two are, are, are rare and hard to find. So it's been an amazing journey with TradeShift. You know, it's a unicorn uh, valuation company. It's been scaling extremely successfully. It's uh, successfully entered the U.S. market and, and changed its headquarters over to San Francisco. So it's now more of a U.S. business than, than a Danish one. And it's been a fantastic journey, as I said, one that will, will continue because, you know, anecdotally, when you talk to Christian about, you know, now you've, you've, you've achieved a billion dollar valuation, how, how do you start thinking about exit? He's like, I'm not thinking about exit at all. Um, you know, he often draws the analogy of Salesforce, who took, I think it was seven or eight years to get to uh, a billion and then got to 100 billion in five years after that. So uh, that's the journey that he's on now in terms of building a very, very large technology company. And it's great to be part of that journey. But he has augmented himself with a very capable team. And I think if you look back on trade shifts history, he would be the first to admit that not all of the execution has been perfect. It's a very difficult thing that they're doing in terms of uh, a small startup company trying to sell to Fortune 500 companies on a SaaS proposition for a start. And that's the sort of foundations of the business, but then overlaying a marketplace pair play around financial services where, you know, it's chicken and egg. You can't really build the market until you have enough volume flowing through um, the overall the overall network. But now with, you know, over 30 billion, and that number's a few weeks out of date, so it's probably higher, but over 30 billion a month going through the network, there's um, plenty of value there. Um, so I, I would say probably they did scale a little bit too early in terms of investing in sales and marketing at a time when they didn't completely have product market fit. But Christian has kind of always uh, driven that business forward, notwithstanding that. And, and so, you know, the, the business has caught up and growing, it's growing extremely, extremely well. Anything particularly you've learned from that, um, from that journey that you're now reapplying to the companies you're investing in? I think, you know, it's a pretty unique company that in terms of what it's trying to do. And so you have to be careful taking too many learnings away from it. But definitely 
the passion and ambition point, you know, is one that I made at the opening of this podcast, and it's one that's absolutely apparent in that. And I think as an investor, it's made us realize that you really want to be looking for these massive, massive opportunities. The two most important things, I mean, we look at a number of criteria when we're investing in a company, including the product and technology and the metrics and the deal terms and, and everything like that. But actually, fundamentally, the two most important things are team and market opportunity. So if you have a great team addressing a, an amazing market opportunity, and I mean that in terms of scale and competitive density and ability to access and all of those things, uh, if you have those two things, then that's when you can really build something special. So I think all all founders should um, be self-reflective in that regard of how big is this opportunity and where do I take it? Because there may still be a very interesting opportunity for them as a founder through a bootstrap business to create an enormous amount of value, but it might not be one that's right for venture capital. And so if anybody listening to this who wants to pitch to you for, for investment um, in our new fund, what do you want them to tell you? What do you want to hear? They need to be, they need to be selling the dream without it being uncredible and kind of peddling snake oil as it were they need to be able to articulate the scale of what they're going after and and generally convey their belief that they can do it and their capability in executing against it but in a in a credible way that's an art not a science in terms of um, that capability a lot of the best companies we often leave the room thinking, how can I, you know, I really want to work with that person? How can I find a way to work with that person? And that, if I can do that at the end of the meeting, then that's something that's really positive. Any other examples? Yeah, I think two I would, I would call out, one of which is, uh, again, one of mine and, and one of which is one of my colleagues, Chris Topman's. So the, the first one, you know, go cardless. The journey there has been an amazing journey. And, and Hiroki is a, a, a very inspirational founder, CEO and leader not least because of the personal journey that he's been on with his, his accident and the way that he responded to that, which was, you know, truly inspirational for anyone that um, was exposed to it, but also in the way that he's kind of thought about the business and evolved the business. So when I first looked at that business, you know, it was bluntly a, a bunch of smart kids that have come, come out of good universities and were very bright and, and were seeking to change the world. You know, Hirok himself was ex-McKinsey, but Oxbridge before, and, and the three of them have been at uni together and had a long-standing relationship there. And that was a great thing, by the way, in terms of that early culture. I think it, um, you know, in terms of driving the idea and the opportunity and getting on and doing it, that was that was great. But I think Hiroki has learned that experience is a valuable asset around the table. And while youth and energy is also a valuable asset, sometimes some, some gray hair and experience can, can counteract that. And so if you look at the way the team has evolved at GoCardless, it's um, been very impressive. And it's certainly one of the strongest teams within our portfolio now across all of the different yeah. roles there. And Hiroki has been very focused on recognizing the value of getting ever better people into the organization. Um, so I'd certainly call out that one. I, I think the other one I would probably call out is Bright Pearl. And, and that was one of the examples earlier where, again, probably scaled um, sales and marketing a little bit too early without completely having product market fit and understanding the unit economics. And that's not meant as a criticism because, as I said, sometimes you need time to figure out the unit economics because you need to see churn and retention coming through. But nonetheless, they found themselves in the position where a, 
a significant proportion of their customer base was simply not economic to, to them. So they changed strategy, became much more focused about their ideal customer profile, significantly increased their ideal order value. And I think there is, a, again, a, a very inspirational and impressive leader in terms of the process he's been through and the decisions he's made and the hires he's made on that. It instilled great confidence to, to me as an investor in the firm anyway, that he can, he can build something significant and special. Yeah, and, and the thing I take from all of these is, is just how much we learn from the experiences we have from companies we invest in, which of course that we can then, re- we, we just kind of keep reapplying. That's the joy of the, of the job. Absolutely, that's the joy of it. I, I learn so much every day with all of my interactions with my founders. And sorry, not just the founders, you know, their, their wider teams and right down their organizations. And also people that we don't invest in. You know, I learn a huge amount from them as well. Um, we don't always make the right decisions. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But I, I certainly like to feel I learn from them and I hope to feel that they get some value from the exchange as well. I'm sure they do. Well, Steve, it's been a real, it's been a real joy and fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for, uh, for coming and joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for hosting me.